Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen. I'm Kristen. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We are two lifelong friends with a combined 23 years of experience working and teaching on Wall Street. Our mission is to demystify the world of high finance and democratize access to some of the most elite careers in the world. So today we're going to be taking a deep dive into something that everyone thinks is super mm -hmm. sexy, IPOs, uh, which stands for Initial Public Offerings. We're going to be doing a breakdown of what an IPO is, why it's done, how it works, how IPOs help make and break fortunes, and then why investors like you or me should think carefully about buying in if we even can. And the interesting thing is whether you want to work in the classic Wall Street roles like investment banking and private equity, investing in the public markets, or you want to say work in the tech industry or be an entrepreneur and found your own company, IPOs are critical for you to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're going to have some fun today. Uh, we're going to talk about two recent IPOs, Instacart and Birkenstock, to help make sense of it all. But first, Kristen and I just finished up a 48-hour <laughs> whirlwind trip to New York City together, so we have to mm -hmm. quickly catch you guys up. Um, yeah. So Kristen, I mean, for me, the highlight, aside from our ridiculous <laughs> photo shoot together, but definitely the highlight for me, we had the wonderful opportunity to speak to a women's finance group at Barnard. And mm -hmm. that was just so inspiring. And one thing mm -hmm. I do want to say quickly, we've gotten a number of requests recently to come speak on college campuses in finance groups and things like that. We love these requests. Our travel schedule is getting booked up really, really fast, but we want to try to make any of this happen that we can. So if you guys are interested in something like that, definitely email us at questions at wallstreetskinny.com because we can make Zooms happen. We can make something happen. Yeah. We want to be talking to you guys. But back to Barnard, I mean, what did what did you think, Kristen? I love meeting people in real life because we have all these conversations with people via DM. And so it's one thing to have a conversation and then to like actually put faces around it. And it's so valuable for us to hear what's actually going on um, at different schools and with different people. So that was awesome. Although I... I got to meet, so my brother and his wife, my sister-in-law had a beautiful baby girl last week. So I got to meet yeah. her and that was oh, amazing. So sweet. So that was, I'm sorry that I was didn't awesome. Make it. I needed to be in bed by 8 PM that night. I, I know. Was really <laughs> tired. I like Nisha was loser. like, come, we're ordering you pizza. Although I was laughing because she's like, what are we going to do with this third pizza? And my brother 
is a human trash can. I mean, he's six foot five, although he has no body fat. Him and his wife, they're just like super athletic, but he eats insane amounts of food. So it's like, I think you'll be okay, but I was disappointed you didn't come. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. No pizza ever goes uneaten in our house. Oh, no. It's never like, no. what will we do? Although I've said this before and my husband thinks this is so awful and bougie of me. I don't <laughs> like leftovers. For some reason, food I'm with loses you. its magic I, it after does. it's been in the refrigerator yeah. for a night. Whereas my youngest child prefers cold pizza. Like, oh, no, I do, I do like cold pizza. Boy. But like, you liked like, cold pizza as a kid, Jen. Yeah, you used to eat cold pizza I, as, like for breakfast. I remember when we were right. kids. Oh, my God. Like I you introduced about me okay. to that. All right, so, so my son comes you by, know, honestly. I was born now a you know boy, where, too. <laughs> yes, yeah. Now we know where it comes from. But that was the first time I'd left my kids since I found out I was pregnant with my third. So that was over two years ago. So that was the first time I'd, yeah. meet, I'd left them. Well, so that, it was, that's always tough. It is. But then also, I mean, like, there is this sense of freedom you get. We got to <laughs> but I was so happy over. to come back and, like, give them hugs. Again, I love them so much. But it's like you miss them. But then when you're away, sometimes you're like, oh, wow, I'm free for a minute. And then, you, but then you're like, but I want to go back and give them a hug. And then Absolutely. cuddling, so like, my niece. Fonder. Yeah. So it was good. It was such a fun trip. Yeah. I had an awesome time. Okay. So let's dive into it today and start talking about IPOs. Let's back up a step. We've talked in other episodes in the past about why corporations need to raise money. We've talked about corporations raising money in the private markets and in the public markets. We've talked about things like venture capital, right? We remember we did that episode with our friend Camilo Acosta. We've talked about the debt capital markets back in our intro to DCM. We used the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon as a case study for that one back in episode mm -hmm. four, back when we were babies. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing we haven't touched on that we really need to is the mm -hmm. equity capital markets. And that's where yeah. IPOs or initial public offerings are done. Mm -hmm. And I know I personally feel like IPOs that's a term you hear all the time, but I guarantee for most people, certainly if you'd asked me six months ago, if you asked them to define what an IPO is, how it works, why a company would do one, what are the mechanics, I think most people would have a very hard time. We've all seen the classic image of people like high-fiving on the New York Stock Exchange when they take their, you know, yep. they ring the bell, whatever. Yep. That is like the teeniest, tiniest part of, of an IPO. Right. So the good news for me is that, Kristen, you're going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting today. This is really Kristen's area of expertise. But this is really something that whether you're thinking about looking at the world of investment banking, like should I be in the investment banking division? Should I look at equity capital markets? Or if you're looking at going to the buy side and thinking about being any kind of investor, this is something you're really going to want to wrap your arms around. So yeah, lots mm -hmm. to unpack here. Kristen, I'm excited. I'll let you take it away. So I think between Instacart going public and then Birkenstock, which was either earlier this week or last week, I don't even know anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't yeah. know what day today is, but <laughs> we had these two beautiful case studies fall into our lap for a reason we'll get to a little bit later, but we did feel it was just this perfect opportunity to tackle the equity capital markets and just get into some foundations as it relates to raising equity, right? In the public markets, specifically an IPO. Now there are other ways to raise equity, like secondary offerings, follow-on offerings, convertible mm -hmm. offerings. So there's lots of other ways that you can raise equity or, or equity link type securities, but we are going to be focusing on the initial public offering. And what that is basically, it's when a company goes to the public markets and allows people to become fractional owners in the business for the first time. And so 
to be completely accurate, this could actually be the second or third time a company goes public. Which drives I feel me like nuts. it's a misnomer. Why are there misnomer. no? <laughs> I don't know. But for example, like you could have a company like Twitter, right? So Elon Musk bought Twitter. It was publicly traded. I, I forget when they did their IPO. It was probably like 2011. Sounds about right. Around when Facebook went public. But so okay. Twitter went public. It was trading in public markets. You and I could buy it. Elon Musk comes along. He buys all of Twitter. He is now the owner. You and I can't buy it anymore. But mm-hmm. down the road, he can go take it public again, still called an IPO. But Jen, I feel like in the one of the earlier episodes, you were like, it should be called a SPO for a secondary public oh, offering yeah, or something. I forgot. Thanks for referencing mm-hmm. my awesome, stupid pun humor. <laughs> <laughs> but first of all, I think it actually is important to just establish like, why does a company want to go public? And so right. there are a number of different reasons. And the main reason these days is that private investors who were funding these companies want to cash out. So mm-hmm. we're going to get into the specifics of Instacart and Birkenstock. But in one case, it was owned entirely by a private equity firm. In another case, it was owned by a bunch of venture capital firms and growth equity firms, but it's a way for them to cash out, right? It's a way for mm-hmm. employees who potentially are paid with stock-based compensation. You might go to some crazy startup and you're not paid a high cash salary, but you're paid on the hopes of one day having this fractional owner share that you can then monetize, right? So it's a way for those employees to cash out, for people to cash out. It's also seen as prestigious. And so if you're a founder, like, you know, you've kind of made it when you go and ring the bell in New York Stock Exchange. Uh, Slash like, helpful. that's also a proxy for yeah. you having just <laughs> made a shit ton of money. Yeah, yes, I'm ringing the bell too. and then I'm going that on too. the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so that is a big thing. That prestige, by the way, can be helpful when you're doing business as well. I mean, if you're selling to certain customers, that also might matter. It can actually even help with raising debt, ironically, because here's the thing. If you are public, you have to file these SEC filings every quarter, right? You have your 10Q. If you're in the US, you have your annual report or your 10K. Internationally, most other companies outside of the U.S. reported or something called international financial reporting standards, but they usually will have like an interim report and then an annual report. But the point is that they have to prepare these documents according to these specific accounting rules. And there's just now more transparency. So if you're a lender, it's a lot easier for you to lend to the business. And it also is, it broadens your investor base. So I hear Renee. Sorry. Is that Renee? That's yes, okay. It is. We love, we love dancing. her. She's dancing all around the room. She was doing a great back scratch while you were talking. She's love now it. up on the bed, so hopefully she'll be quiet. So <laughs> For I'm those going- of you who don't know, that is uh, Jed's. She doesn't have the baby screams, but she just has the dog, the dog pants. That's so, right. <laughs> but yeah, I will say there are downsides to going public. Mm-hmm. It does just make operating the business more expensive, right? So you have lots because of Because you have to do all that reporting. Yeah, you have to do all that mm-hmm. reporting. And you're putting together investor presentations and the filings and you need those accountants. You have extra fees. There's also going to be more scrutiny over things. I mean, because now you have to publish like this particular person's salary is X. Again, if it's above a certain amount, there's Mm -hmm. a lot more information you are giving to the public because they are public shareholders. You're not just like one person who owns the company and can make all the decisions. Now other people get a say. There's also a lot of focus on the quarterly earnings. And so you sometimes, you might sacrifice long-term performance because there's such a focus on hitting your earnings. And and think about it this way. I think that sometimes people ask, why is there so much dysfunction in government? And part of it is that you have these elected representatives who are constantly thinking, I only need to look four years ahead. So am I going to do something that's good for the long-term when I'm going to get voted out in 
two years if you're in Congress, four years if you're a president, six years, I think it's six years for the Senate, right? The problem is, is the second they get into office, they're like, time to start the re-election campaign. Exactly. And you're like, mm-hmm. what uh, yeah. well, What about all that stuff you said you were going to do? Oh, I'm too busy right, right, trying right. to get re-elected. And that too, yeah. too. Yeah. But the point is, it means that the focus is in much shorter increments, which potentially yeah. could be problematic if you're trying to do some large strategic reorg or whatever, it can make it a little bit more difficult. And then I will also add, by the way, it opens you up to potentially getting sold to a company that you don't want to sell to. Mm -hmm. Now you have anybody can come and buy your shares. Anyone Mm -hmm. can potentially get, well, actually that's not true. I say anyone. Depends on how it's structured. Snapchat and Facebook, investors couldn't get more than 50% ownership. They still retain a controlling ownership. There can be. There can be. The way that you go public and the way that like the ownership rights work and the classes of shares, like there's different ways that companies can potentially protect themselves. But for the most part, you still have the ability for other people to buy in. And this is something you see right now with Disney. So you have Nelson Peltz, who is buying a lot of shares. He is an activist investor. He now because he's going to be a part owner, potentially he's going to get some seats on the board. So the point though, is that you are opening yourself up for a lot of people that could buy into you who maybe mm-hmm. have different motivations. And as the mm-hmm. CEO, you're not going to necessarily have all the control. And so, just as those people can buy, mm-hmm. people can sell. So you could think you're sell. doing a great job as a corporation mm-hmm. and you get a bunch of activist investors who yep. want your stock price to go down for whatever reason, Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Or some research analyst who you don't like at some bank who thinks that they don't like you yeah. and they go on a personal vendetta for whatever reason. Right. You open yourself up to that too. Yeah. And you obviously were at Lehman. I was at Morgan Stanley when people were shorting the crap out of the stock. And it has real consequences for people who who potentially work there. So there can be some downsides to going public. But we're going to use these two companies, (laughs) Morgan Stock and uh, Instacart. Clearly, the investors decided that it was the right time to do it. So I do want to back up a second, Jen. I, I assume you've heard of Birkenstock and Instacart. I have. It's funny. Did you I own know any of the shoes? Well, so mm-hmm. Birkenstock has become really trendy again recently. Yeah. I feel like I was peer pressured into buying a pair of Birkenstocks in like fourth grade because we were we grew up outside of Boston and everyone yeah. was like, oh, I want to be a crunchy hippie. These are the mm-hmm. cool shoes. They were the most yeah. uncomfortable pair of shoes I've ever owned, <laughs> except for the rainbow flip flops that my college boyfriend bought me. But like, oh, funny. they were singularly one of the most terrible pairs of shoes I've ever owned. Mm-hmm. Sorry, owners of Birkenstock stock. If this, <laughs> I don't think we have enough power to make your stock go down. Yeah. But I, I don't currently own any, but I know they're really I don't trendy again. Well, because of the Barbie movie. I think that right, she, right, right. And I haven't even wearing, seen that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I heard it's like celebrities and then the Barbie movie. So there's been a lot of hype about it. And they actually had a new owner. So it, it's a 250 year old company, which is kind of interesting. Wow. It's a very, by the way, so this is why I think it was so cool. It's like a very different kind of history from, call it Instacart. But yeah, it's a 250-year-old company. It's a family-owned company. company. They're not an American company, No, they're German. They're They're a German German company, right? Yeah. They did decide to list on the New York Stock Exchange, which is kind of Mm -hmm. interesting. But no, they're a German company, family business. I think it was 2013. They had a CEO come in who like actually has been doing a freaking fantastic job. Was Uh sold to a private equity firm, which we're going to get into in a little bit. And then we talk about in private equity, you like have your investment and then you need to exit. So like this is there as they're starting to exit, which we'll get to in a sec. Okay. Instacart, on the other hand, and this is why I think this was kind of a cool case study is you have, again, the classic LBO strategy, which by the Mm -hmm. way, it is important to note that when Birkenstock was bought, they piled a shit ton of debt on the company. That's what you do in a Mm -hmm. classic LBO. With Instacart, it was very different. Instacart's only, I think that they got their seed funding. If you remember back to our episode with Camilo Acosta on Mm -hmm. seed funding and venture capital. 
So they got their seed funding in 2012 and their investors are like Y Combinator and Sequoia and Anderson Horowitz and Tiger Global, your classic players in that space. Mm -hmm. And so just very different types of investors. At the end of the day though, they both want to cash out. So that's back to the motivation. So Mm -hmm. one of the things, by the way, that if you are working in banking, you're going to be doing is talking to these investors, talking to the CEOs about the markets and the timing. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that actually a little later on just market timing and what's been going on in the equity markets. But for now, understand that you have investors and they decided, hey, we want to, we want to cash out. Okay. So I do want to back up and just set the stage for some definitions. So something that actually drove me crazy is when I was reading in the journal, trying to understand the valuation of the business, of the equity, it drove me crazy that you would see headlines, Instacart or Birkenstock going public for a valuation of $9 billion. Here's the thing. Is that a valuation of the equity or of the entire firm? Those are two freaking different things. And especially for the Birkenstock example, because it was a leveraged buyout, that's like buying a house. You know, I've used this mm-hmm. analogy a million times. You buy a house, if you buy a house for a million dollars and you lever the crap out of that, like you go and you get a mortgage, right? So you borrow $800,000, you're only putting in $200,000 of your own equity. The value of the equity and the value of the entire house, two very different things. Same very with the business. Different. That's what drove me crazy when I was trying to understand the valuation. I'm like, well, what are we talking about here? So mm-hmm. that is something that I just wish the financial press would be a little bit more specific when they are going, hey, the value is this. But so just to put some numbers around this, the private equity firm, Catterton. Oh, which was it? Catterton. Okay. Catterton. Yeah, Catterton. Which, by the way, just fun fact, is backed by the CEO of LVMH, Bernard Arnold, who uh-huh. I think like for a hot second in April was the richest man in the world. So the private equity firm bought Birkenstock and it was roughly for like $4.8 billion. Now, because this was a private investment, it's hard to get exact numbers. You also have the FX problem because it was in, I think it was in euros. So it's hard to know exactly, but whatever it was, it had like a four handle for the entire firm. Okay. When they bought the business, right? So call it $4.8 billion, They put roughly $2 billion in debt on the business. So they only had to put in, call it $2.8 billion of equity. That number might be a little bit off because of the complications I mentioned, but that if you look at the filings, they, they put in debt like 6.6 times EBITDA. That is a very highly levered company. Now, when they're going public, they're taking the equity public. Again, the equity they put in was like 2.8 billion. They're taking the equity public for a valuation of, I think it was like $8.6 billion. So they wow. grew their equity a shit ton times, Wow! <laughs> right? They like tripled the value of their, their equity. Worth noting, they're not selling all of the equity. Right, They're not going out to the public markets and raising $8.6 billion of equity. They're only selling a fractional amount of shares. So I think nowadays the norm is roughly to sell about 12% of those shares. Like, So okay. you're selling only a fraction of the equity. It's like 12% or so. Historically, it was like 25%. But yeah. So everyone's so keeping more control. They're cashing out in little increments and keeping more control. Yeah. And you can also be even a little bit more cynical about it and say that they're restricting supply. Because as we get into it, we are going to talk about pricing. It is a supply and demand thing. There's the valuation discussion, and then there is the pricing discussion. So there is a little Mm -hmm. bit of that. So they are not going out and raising $8.6 billion. And then we're going to get to, in just a sec too, that there is this distinction between primary proceeds and secondary proceeds. Is the company raising the cash? Is it Birkenstock? Or is it Catterton selling out their shares? 
or in the case of Instacart, is it those investors like Y Combinator and so on? Are they selling their shares or is it the company actually raising the cash? So that's a really important thing. But back to just some basic valuation 101, you have the value of the entire firm. We have what is the value of the equity? When you talk about taking the company public, you care about what is the equity per share. So they're mm-hmm. now taking all of that equity and dividing it, right? And, and mm-hmm. selling off tiny little pieces. So if you buy in, you are a teeny tiny little owner of the business. You have Got a it. teeny bit of ownership. You potentially have votes, or I don't want to say potentially, depends on the nuances of the ownership, the control, all that kind of fun stuff. It can get complicated really fast. But in general, you're probably going to have voting rights. You're going to get paid potentially a dividend. You now are a tiny little owner of this business. All right. So now that we understand, great. Catterton, Y Combinator, whoever, they want to start the IPO process. By the way, management's involved a little bit, but ultimately, (laughs) I mean, these guys are the owners, so they have a significant amount of influence on the decision to go public. But so now they're like, great, we need to go call up some bankers. Okay. So we want to go public and the time is now, you know, that the markets are open and just like you would want to sell your house in the case of real estate, and you would call up your real estate agent, you call up those investment banks. So Mm -hmm. talking about the investment banks running the IPO process, in an IPO, there are what's called book runners, and then there Mm -hmm. are co-managers who are running this process. So book runners are basically the banks that are doing all the heavy lifting in the IPO Mm -hmm. process from the beginning. They're going to be helping to understand what is the pricing we want to go out at. They're going to be doing a lot of the drafting. So they have to actually like write the filing that goes and gets filed with the SEC. It's called the prospectus. They're going to be actually doing the IPO. So Mm -hmm. they have the risk. When you say underwriting, Mm -hmm. I'll also call them the underwriters. They are buying the shares and then they are need to sell it. They are wearing most of the risk, making sure that the deal is successful, also collecting the lion's share of the fees. Being a co-manager is a consolation prize because, mm-hmm. and we're going to get into the process of the company choosing their mm-hmm. book runners, but it's kind of like here, you know, we, we want to keep a relationship with you guys, but like also we're going with Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which by the way, who were the two lead left book runners on this deal? It was Goldman Sachs, it was JP Morgan. It, it, we're going to get into like how you choose the book runners, but So among those book runners, like we said, there's that lead left coveted position and it's called lead left because in the document, in that initial prospectus, the names are actually on the left, like left hand side of the page, like you in the left hand side of the page, like it's actually on the left hand side of the page. Exactly. The lead right book runner would just be on the right side, but they also, if you're lead right, you're getting less fees. So you want Mm -hmm. the left. So as we keep saying, the left is going to be doing most of the work but they're also collecting a lot of the money. And actually, just to give you guys a sense of how the fees looked, in Birkenstock in particular, Birkenstock sold 32 million shares and Mm -hmm. roughly 63 million in fees. I want to actually get into the breakdown of how this was divvied up amongst the different book runners. You had three book runners, Goldman, JP Morgan, and Morgan Stanley. They got the bulk of those fees. However, Goldman and JP Morgan were lead left. So each of them, of the 60, 63 million, I think I said. said 63 million in fees, yeah. Yeah. Each of them got 17.4 million in fees each. That's roughly 27% of the entire pie of fees. So mm-hmm. that's like 50% to them alone. Yeah. Morgan 50% Stanley, to the top two of the, and then exactly. everybody else is just fighting for pennies. <laughs> exactly. Well, Morgan Stanley did get a little more. Again, they are technically a book runner. So they got 12%, mm-hmm. which re- translated to $7 million, $7.5 million. And then as you go down, you have like Bank of America, Citigroup, Evercore, Jefferies, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, you know, 3.7% down to 1.7%. And then like at the very bottom, uh, we've got Loop Capital Markets. Well, I've never even heard of them. I haven't either. Academy Securities at 0.2%. 
So that's like $157,000. It's not zero, but like versus- It sounds like a lot of money, but it doesn't keep the lights on an investment bank no. for more than a day. So lead left, right? You want to be the book runner. You want to be lead left. By the way, $63 million in fees, that's a lot. And just generally speaking, IPOs fees are going to be the highest of pretty much any type of capital that you can raise. Mm. So if you are a company going public, sticker price for probably a smaller company is like six to 7%. Now in Uh this Birkenstock example, you have Catterton. And by the way, private equity firms do a ton of business with banks. You also have the fact that this is a pretty large deal. I think they were raising one and a half billion dollars of proceeds. And so it's a big deal and people want in on that deal. And so a lot of times when banks want in on that deal, they might lower fees a little bit. I think actually Facebook, the fees that Facebook paid was like nothing because like everyone wanted to be Everyone in on that wanted deal. the prestige. Yeah. Everyone wanted the prestige. So you can have situations where the fees is lower, but mm-hmm. in this case, four and a half is not insane, but it's still pretty high, right? Four and a yeah. half is still so, high. So I mean, you really want a, a chance at getting a slice of that pie. So mm-hmm. let's go back to the lead book runners for a second. Let's talk about how we actually get to be one of those lead book runners. Yeah. So the whole process starts with something called a bake-off. And mm-hmm. what that means is that companies are going to go to the firm mm-hmm. and pitch why Birkenstock or whoever, why they should pick Morgan Stanley. Why should mm-hmm. you pick Goldman Sachs? Why should you pick Academy Securities? And there's all the work that that senior relationship manager has done cultivating those relationships. The MDs in banking own the relationships with the client. And so mm-hmm. in the case of Birkenstock, the sponsors group is very much involved because the, the relationship that the senior bankers have with Catterton is mm-hmm. huge. Now, you also have the consumer retail team, mm-hmm. right? That industry group who's going to have relationships with the CEO as well. So mm-hmm. you're going to have the banks talking, having these like presentations, meetings, like with both parties, but mm-hmm. the relationship piece is huge. And that's where like mm -hmm. over the course of, again, you said that Catterton only bought Birkenstock a couple of years ago. So they probably had touch points with the financial sponsors group getting into the deal, who's then Mm -hmm. been keeping touch points on them throughout saying, hey, listen, here's where the market is. It's not quite time to get out yet. Or maybe start thinking about getting out. The consumer retail guys are saying, hey, here's how the consumer retail IPOs are going. They're all Mm -hmm. busted IPOs, whatever it may be. (laughs) And so every single dinner, every single phone call that those guys are having, it's all with the goal in mind of get yep. being the ones that they call during this bake off yeah. and say, okay, you win, right? Especially for the financial sponsors, because going back to that LBO to begin with, the lenders in mm-hmm. the deal, the banks that were helping Catterton actually finance the acquisition, meaning yep. helping them raise the debt, then uh-huh. helping them if they needed to refinance the debt. There's a whole bunch it, of yep. touch points along the way that they're going to have as the business progresses. So there's a little bit more of that relationship piece versus with an Instacart. I mean, yeah, they probably had some interactions and they've had some meetings, but Catterton has been talking to whatever these banks are and not just about Birkenstock, but about all these other portfolio companies that they have. And I will say in my experience, I had a situation where I was involved in a bake-off and we were pitching one of the sponsors, right? On choosing us, choosing Morgan Stanley for book runner for the IPO. And ultimately, like a huge consideration for them was who was the initial lender on the LBO. Mm. And if you weren't a lender, you might get a co-manager position. You might get lead right, maybe, but you're not going to get that prestigious lead left 
mm-hmm. at least in the experience of the few deals that I worked on, if yeah. you were not a lender on the LBO, which is something Got that you it. weren't going to see in the sort of more techie space, if you will. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. There's no LBO. <laughs> right. But yeah. Talk to me a little about league tables because I've heard that term a mm-hmm. lot. Everyone's like, oh, we're here in the league tables. One of the reasons that a company might choose you is just mm-hmm. how many deals you've done in the past, right? Yeah. You seem really good. You help well, a lot of other people. You can help right. me. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, Jen, you want to go win real estate business. You're like, hey, I sold that house across I sold your neighbor's street. house hey, and I, I sold, sold two houses down house. the street. Yeah. I, I know this area well. I know the yep. ins and outs of this town. I know everything about it. I'm going to be able to walk you through all the pitfalls you're going to encounter. Right. That's why someone's going to choose you. That's why someone's going to choose Goldman or Morgan Stanley because they have tons of experience in that particular sector. And so those league tables where you basically look at how do you stack up relative to all those mm-hmm. other banks in how much equity you have raised over call it the past year. And it's funny though, because these league tables become a little bit of just like, it's a joke because you will slice and dice the data to make you look the most favorable as possible. I mean, Jen and I, when we were first starting our podcast, we were super excited. We're like, we're the number 17 in the career categories in, I don't know, Lebanon or something. But like, we could continue to slice and dice that data and be like, well, if we only look at two women talking finance, you have 23 years of experience. You know, the more you narrow the criteria down, the easier it is for you to climb in the rankings. And so right. you sometimes will see that those league tables are like, well, what happens if we exclude Europe? What happens if we <laughs> only look at this time frame? What if it's just the last quarter? So it does get a little bit of a joke, but the, the league tables are still kind of huge. And I think at the end of the day, there are certain banks that are known and prestigious in certain industries. A big part of that, by the way, is going to depend on who the research analysts are in that sector. And why does this matter? So when a company goes public, research analysts are going to have to put out quarterly reports, maybe even more frequent. At the time of the IPO, they put together something called an initiating coverage report. And Mm -hmm. it's this in-depth walkthrough of the valuation, what research thinks the valuation is, and all this other stuff. And having really good research analysts who are then going Mm -hmm. to cover, because by the way, it's the book runners usually whose research analysts are going to put together those initiating coverage reports. Having good research analysts is like a huge factor in that. If you haven't listened to the episode we did with Steve, it's it's interesting because research technically is not allowed to talk to the bankers Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. research is not supposed to be influenced by the banking team to like, basically we're going to write only favorable stuff so that the banking team can win business. So there's this wall that's, you're not supposed to cross it. Research team is taken over the wall when the IPO was going to happen. So then they can be brought in with meetings with investors and all that. So I just wanted to make that one quick point that the research analyst, they are technically supposed to be kind of independent, but the quality of the research analyst and their experience and their history and all that is going to play an important part. That makes a lot of sense. And we've talked a lot about what the senior bankers are doing when it comes to this. Can we touch a little bit on what junior bankers are doing all of this? Are, are you guys, yeah. what are you doing during the bake-off? Oh, you're, you're having a lot of fun. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot of making really pretty decks that stand out. It's, it's almost like, you know, if you PowerPoint like with Legally deck. Blonde, PowerPoint decks. But, you know, remember back to Legally Blonde where she puts together her resume and then she like makes it pink and then she the like- The pink perfumed with... resume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like that. So you're putting together decks, but they're not normal size decks. These are presentations that are printed on poster board paper. These annoying sized, massive, I can't, I'm like, I wish I knew the exact dimensions, but they're like so annoying because you have at the bank, you'll have these macros in your PowerPoint that will automate certain processes. So it's a little bit less painful. No, no. With these big things, nobody's spending time making the macros for those big things. So you're literally formatting 
all this oh, crap. It's so tedious. Maybe it they can do it in Canva now. Miserable. Yeah. I actually feel like PowerPoint and Canva need to merge. Okay. So once you win the bake off and it's time to go public, what the mm -hmm. heck happens? All right. So once you've decided you want to go public, there's a whole bunch of filings, right? The SEC basically has a lot of strict limitations on the, the disclosures that companies have to publish mm -hmm. when you're going public. So there is one particular filing called the S1, um, sometimes also mm -hmm. called the prospectus or the registration statement, whatever. And it is essentially going to go through everything from we are raising this amount of money at this price per share, this is the underwriting discount, then goes through the whole deals, what are the use of proceeds, all this stuff. And ultimately, you have the financials, you have the risks associated, like it's, it's a huge amount of disclosure. When you first go out though, you're going to file this, but you don't know what price you mm. are going out at. So when it's first published, this is called the preliminary prospectus, there is going to be holes everywhere. It's like, mm -hmm. we're going public for a price of this. We're raising this much in proceeds, but it's just a giant, like giant TBD, TBD. blank. So I think that's totally a really holes. important thing though. You know, it's funny because that's something I do in real estate where mm -hmm. when I'm competing for a listing, so many people are like, just tell me the price. I don't care. Yeah, I don't yeah, care yeah. about your method. I don't care about your strategy. Just what, what can my house sell for? And I always say, I don't compete on price because I can make up any number. I can say I can yeah. sell your house for $5 million. If it's worth two, that's a lie. Right. So you shouldn't. <laughs> You shouldn't choose me because I I'm going to tell you the biggest number. You should choose me because you yeah. like my method. Right. Now, is exactly. it, it sounds like it's the same way with these banks. It's like, listen, we can't guarantee you a price. Do yeah. they already kind of know, though, generally speaking, where it's yeah. going to well, price? Part of, yeah, part of what they're going to do is they are going to be, they'll be doing more valuation. Mm -hmm. I always like to distinguish valuation versus pricing. So they can right. do the valuation analysis. They're going to run a DCF. They are mm -hmm. going to look at the comps. They're going to say, hey, we, you know, these, these companies went public for this price. These comps, similar companies in your sector are trading at this multiple, whatever it is, they can get an idea of what makes sense. If their research analyst has already been brought over the wall, they're going to have conversations with research and research is going to say, this is what we think. So that is absolutely going to inform what they say to the client. Now, if you have one bank saying, I think you're worth I think you're worth $15 million. A share. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Another one's like, oh, I think you're worth 35. They're like, well, right. I like that guy saying 50. So they still might. It might influence the decision they make, even though realistically it shouldn't affect it. It has nothing to do with the market value. Yeah. yeah. So the bankers will absolutely be having valuation discussions. We'll get a little bit later to how the quote unquote price talk is set because that is going to now be more of that pricing. It is incorporating the actual investor appetite and the actual indications of interest that the investors have actually given. So, well, so that's where we are now, mm -hmm. right? So once we've got that S1 yes. file, now we can start talking about it. Are the yep. banks now marketing the deal? Yeah. So what happens is there's going to be something called a roadshow where uh -huh. the bankers are going to go around with the management team. Potentially there's some of the people from the sponsors, but it's, it's really the management team because investors want to meet the CEO and understand their vision for the business. What am I buying? Yeah. So they're going to have conversations. And so you have these bankers and again, management team that's literally flying to every single city imaginable. I mean, they'll be that's doing kind like of ironic though, because the management it, team, as far as determining the direction of a company like Birkenstock, that's majority owned by a private equity firm has so little say in what that company is doing. Well, I, the, the private equity firm, I believe also going as well. I oh, mean, got it. so they are going to be traveling around meeting all these asset managers, the fidelities of the world, the Wellingtons of the world. And then once they've gone through that process, you then have the sales teams at these banks who are mm -hmm. going to be calling up these investors and like, Hey, what are you thinking? Right. And so they're going to gauge what's called the indication of interest. They're going to ask fidelity. Okay. 
where are you at? And they might say, I want 10 million shares at $44. I want 5 million shares at 47. I want 1 million shares at 49. Got so it. they're going to be giving these indications of interest. And Meanwhile, that's what right? builds your price mm-hmm. talk. So in that example, yes. your price yes. talk ends up being, okay, it's somewhere in the 44 to 49 range, well, right? Yeah. But so, so again, they're going to be going through this process of quote unquote, building the book, you know, and I think mm-hmm. you talked about this in the debt capital markets thing as well. So yep. in a hot deal, you have hedge funds. The thing with hedge funds is that they're typically going to want to hold securities for shorter periods of time. So it's right. like it's much like, tougher for them to get an allocation. You want right? the real money. Yep. Yeah. You want you as want much real hands. money as you can. You want strong hands. You don't want the people that are going to buy and then get rid of it down the line. So they're probably going to be giving smaller amounts to some of these hedge funds. And actually, this is funny. I was listening and I've posted before about Scott Galloway. This is this NYU Stern professor. I feel like I'm like um, the NYU Stern spokesperson. I love Oswald's <laughs> motor and he's like my go-to person. This guy, Scott Galloway, I go to him just for a lot of color on the markets. But anyway, the point is that he was, <laughs> I heard him on his podcast and he was like, you know, with Birkenstock, it was not a great sign when my guy at Goldman called me up and was like, hey, do you want into the Birkenstock IPO? Because uh-huh. he, as an individual, is something called the retail investor. Right. And usually it's hard to get into it's these IPOs as a retail investor. As a retail investor yeah. to get into any kind of hot IPO. Exactly. And so if you're getting calls like, hey, do you want in? And that's simply because they're, they're smaller size, right? Even if you get <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. together all the assets of these retail investors, when you compare it to a big institution, it's going to be a relatively small Well, and same size. thing. They're, they're also probably not necessarily going to be like the long-term holders who are sitting there holding on to this. They're like the hedge funds. You have the risk of people right. who are buying more on a whim. But anyway, the salespeople are building the book. And their goal is to get something that is, quote unquote, oversubscribed, right? So you want to have a lot more demand than the Mm -hmm. shares you are selling. It's like selling more seats than are actually available on the airplane. Because Mm -hmm. if somebody misses their flight, if somebody changes, you want to still have that money there, right? Like you want to have the people that are going to be taking the flight. So Birkenstock for them, the price talk they went out at was $44 to $49 per share. That was the price Mm -hmm. talk range. Now, when they ultimately priced, the price that they're selling, that was at $46 a share. They sold, I think it was 32 million shares. That meant that there was raised in this IPO $1.46 billion of proceeds. That's how much cash was raised from outside investors. That pricing, remember I said, they're only selling like 12%. That is what gave us that implied market capitalization, another fancy word for the value of your equity. That's what gave you that $8.6 billion of equity. Um, And it makes sense. Just back of the envelope math, you told me that the average company sells about 12%, right? Exactly. Eighth of their equity. So that that makes a ton of sense. Yes. But here's the thing. The $1.46 billion, where is that going? Because is the company getting it? Is Birkenstock getting it? Is the private equity firm getting it? And so this brings us to the language we use to explain that, which is primary versus secondary proceeds or primary Mm. versus secondary shares. And so in general, when a company raises money, as we said, it can either go to the company or it can go to insiders who are cashing out. Primary proceeds refers to the cash that is going to the company. So for example, the company, in the case of Birkenstock, they now have cash that they can use. And usually, by the way, with these sponsor-backed IPOs, which is when a portfolio company of a private equity firm goes public, you call that often uh-huh. a sponsor-backed IPO. And usually what happens with the proceeds the company gets is it used it's used to pay down debt because the company has a huge burden of debt. Of debt. So yeah. they pay down the debt. And that actually was the use of proceeds in this particular deal. I actually wish I'd looked it up for Instacart. I didn't do that. But Instacart, basically they're going to use it to like invest and to build out 
infrastructure and investing. They're going to use it to grow the company. Exactly. And Birkenstock is going to use it to restructure the company effectively by yeah to pay exactly to change Mm -hmm. the debt to equity mix. Exactly. Secondary proceeds, right, or secondary shares that are sold. That's going to Catterton, that private equity firm who's cashing mm-hmm. out. Now, I have and a question. So, so we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about how private equity companies make money in the past. And so we've yeah. always talked about purchasing the company, and then you invest in it for several number of years, and then you ultimately exit. And that's how you yeah. achieve that IRR, that whatever yeah. it is, 10, 15, 25% IRR. Just yeah. looking at some back of the envelope math here, this was a relatively small exit relative to the total investment that Catterton made in Birkenstock. This right. is just because remember, it's, it's only not a few only years yeah. after. Well, it's interesting because not only are they only selling twelve percent of the equity, but the split between primary and secondary proceeds. Now, this was interesting because there was actually a larger split that was secondary. So Catterton selling, I think, was seventy one percent. When I was working on sponsor-backed IPOs back in the, whatever, 2010s, there was a lot more of the proceeds. It would actually be closer to 100% primary. So the company mm-hmm. would get 100% and the insiders would have to wait. There's also something called a lockup period. So mm-hmm. you would have the private equity or whatever, insiders, it doesn't have to be private equity, private equity management, it could be employees. They oftentimes, when the company goes public, have to sign something with the, the banks saying, we will not sell for 180 days. And so it's actually pretty typical to see that you have your IPO. Again, you might not have any secondary proceeds, meaning Mm -hmm. the sponsors got no cash at the time of the IPO. Six months later, now there's this orderly cashing out where the bulk of the proceeds are secondary. So they Mm -hmm. actually then are going to be selling out of their position. But you're exactly right in the sense that they put in the $2.8 billion dollars they're getting out like $1 billion. And at the end of this IPO, right. they still own 82%. And right. they've just gotten a billion dollars. They put in $2.8 billion, They got $1 billion out and they still own 86, 82% of it. So that's actually mm-hmm. pretty awesome for them. But- so it's likely, it's reasonable to expect that there will be additional exits from El Catterton over the next oh, yes. however many years. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. At, periodically, yes. right? This is just, exactly. this isn't a full exit. This is just no. like a little bit like, okay, we'll take a couple of pennies out relative to what yes. we'll ultimately be taking out in the end. Exactly. And so there there could be the secondary offering and down the line, they might ultimately sell. So this happens a lot where like you have the company, they take it public and over time they sell out slowly. And then there might be some residual, I don't know, 30, 40% that they own. And then there might be an actual sale to another private equity firm, to another business. You could see that almost like pass the baby, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, here you go. Like we pass it along. That actually is very, very common that you see they go public, they sell out over a course of time, and then they could have an actual sale where they get out entirely. But they're not completely exiting at the time of the IPO. And in fact, in some cases, there might be no actual exit. Like they haven't sold a single dime because all the proceeds potentially were primary. So that's a that really, a really good point. Now let's go back to pricing a little bit because I was really interested to understand that a little bit better. Yes. It's very clear that pricing, we talked about that oversubscribed book that we're trying to build on behalf of the company. This is so much a supply and demand thing. You Mm -hmm. said that ultimately Birkenstock priced at 46. How does that tie out to where someone doing their DCF model or that research analyst or whatever, how does that compare to what quote unquote fair value pricing was before taking market dynamics into account? Oh, I love this question. So 
As Lots of Motorin, I've talked about him a thousand times. He is my go-to source for anything valuation. He actually did put together a DCF and has a lovely YouTube video on it as well. Although it actually goes on a tangent on intangibles, which if anyone wants to learn about intangible assets, well, brand that's value. The, that's- that's All the market that kind of value stuff. from that Barbie movies. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and that's, stuff. Yeah, exactly. But so when he went ahead and ran the DCF, I think he got something like $41 a share. Okay. And the DCF is part of it. There's also the comps analysis. As a banker, the DCF is important, but equally as important is something called comps, something that academics are maybe less focused on. In different industries, you care about different multiples. In some cases, it could be enterprise value to EBITDA. In other cases, it could be the price to earnings ratio. In other cases, it could be, I don't know, price per barrel of oil or price to book. In the you case did a of the, great of explanation bank. of that in our Valuation 101 episode. Oh, thanks. But yeah, so we have these different potential multiples that investors are going to care about and look mm-hmm. at relative to other businesses. What the banker is going to do is they're going to build out this little model and by the way, you, you might look at multiple multiples, right? Multiple, so you might multiple. look at both, <laughs> both the enterprise value to sales and EBITDA uh-huh. and PE ratio. So in order to get that PE ratio, which by the way is forward looking, mm-hmm. you don't care what happened in the past. You care about what's happening next year, two years out, three years out. So you need to figure out what is the projected earnings look like? So mm-hmm. you build your little model. You say, hey, I'm doing this IPO. I'm getting this amount of cash and then taking this cash and paying down debt. What is my net income look like next year? What does my net income look like in two years? Again, with that lower net interest, potentially with the Mm -hmm. growth that is expected and all of that. And so that is going to help inform those multiples, which then help us understand, does this make sense from a valuation standpoint? How does Mm -hmm. the multiple stack up to the comps? And again, how does the DCF, that price per share that you get at the end of the DCF, how does that stack up? So with Birkenstock, I think they went out and it was just too expensive. As we'll get Mm -hmm. to in a little bit, the deal didn't do so good. Most of the times when you do an IPO, it is usually priced at a discount or you want to go out to the public at a price talk that is 15% below what is potentially a fair value, right? Oh, okay. Because there's like, an IPO discount. Exactly. You want the share price to go up. If the share price yeah. goes down, that is called a broken or busted IPO. You do not want that to happen. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, with Birkenstock, I think it was just overpriced. So Demotorin, he, I think on a per share basis, his view was it was sort of in like the $41 per share range. So on still below the, the bottom of the price top. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if you look at it, it was like enterprise item sales of like seven, which is very high. I mean, especially for okay. a company that doesn't have a lot of growth. So it was priced probably a little bit too high. And as a result, what happened? The share price went down. So just fun fact, the pricing... As we said, the price stock was 44 to 49. The pricing was 46. Yep. It opened at 41. And today it is trading at 38. Ooh. That, my friends, is a broken IPO. That is not good. Now, part of the bank's job is they are supposed to prevent the IPO from breaking. So, mm. number one, they're supposed to provide that 15% discount. Price it a little bit low. They're supposed to And then they're supposed to find so many people who want the stock mm-hmm. that the book is so far oversubscribed. They're like, yep. oh my God, I'm so sorry you didn't get any allocation. But guess what? You can buy it the second day. Right. Lucky exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. And in addition, there is something else that they have called a green shoe. The bank's job, in addition to doing those things, it is also to stabilize the price. And mm-hmm. the, the way that they do that is there's this thing called a green shoe. It was first used with a IPO of Green Shoe Manufacturing Company, now called Stride Right. 
But it was the first me too. That was the first shoes that all my kids had when they learned to walk. But the the mechanics of this actually can be a little bit tricky, but I'm going to explain it. Hopefully it makes sense. So the green shoe, the legal name for it is an over allotment option because the underwriters are basically provided additional shares that they can sell. When a company goes public, let's pretend for nice round numbers that you are issuing a hundred shares. So they're looking for buyers. They have the option, by the way, to buy an extra 15 shares. So they can buy from the company 115 shares. Well, guess what? Even though they technically are only selling 100 shares, they go out on day one and they sell 115 shares. So they've already oversold the IPO. They are short. Is this in the S1? Is this in the prospectus or no? It is in the S1 in the sense that they will tell you what the over allotment option is. Oh, okay. You won't know if it was exercised without looking at Bloomberg. After the fact, you would need to check Bloomberg to see if the green shoe was exercised and by how much. Got but it. so the way that this, this whole thing works, so we said, okay, you're supposed to be selling 100 shares. You have the option to sell an extra 15, but regardless, the bank on day one sells 115. Mm-hmm. So they have sold the 100 they have, and then they're short 15 shares. Mm-hmm. In the next coming weeks, two things could happen. Number one. The share price does great. This is what's supposed to happen. Everyone's happy. Everyone wants to party. The underwriters have already sold those shares. We're going to exercise the option. Everyone's happy. We all party. Everyone's good. Mm -hmm. Number two, the share price could be what happened with Birkenstock and you have a busted IPO. The share price goes down. As the underwriter, you are short 15 shares. Mm -hmm. You have sold at 46. Mm -hmm. What happens when you're short shares? You have to somehow come and buy them back. You need to go out and cover your short by buying. So what this means is that there is now upward pressure because there are buyers out there in the form of the underwriters who need to buy shares, hence stabilizing it. Now, Mm -hmm. for the bank, I mean, (laughs) it's not great. It seems like maybe it's a good thing because they've sold at 46 and they're going and buying. It's at 38 right now. Guess what? If you sold at 46 and you buy at 38, you just made eight bucks. Mm-hmm. So yay for the bank, but also like not great because you do not want to have the reputation of having just done a busted IPO. That's not good. Mm-hmm. That doesn't look good for you. Even though technically the banks will make money if they have to do this stabilization, it's not really good for anyone. And the amount of money mm-hmm. they're going to make, is not that much. Mm-hmm. You don't want that to happen, but the, the ability to exercise the green shoe does allow- Forces that the, the bank's hand into basically yeah. having to put a little bit of at least upward Extra pressure, pressure on the stock In order to, in order to cover their short. Yeah. Exactly. Again, probably a drop in the bucket, but like- Exactly. They're like, shit, this doesn't look good. And but this has uh, been the, the trend, right? So many of these IPOs have busted recently. It's interesting. That's, I would argue, more a reflection of some dynamics of just what's going on in the private markets. Call it 20 years ago. Companies would go public and you might have some venture capital firms who are providing seed funding. The company is now profitable and now they're going to go public. You can buy in as an individual investor. There's a lot of upside. What's happening now is that there's so much more private money. So you have the venture Mm -hmm. capital firms, you have the growth equity firms, you have the hedge funds, you have, and even asset managers who Mm -hmm. can potentially get in on the private markets as well. So there's a lot more money further along. There's money along. being invested in the private markets. No one's yeah. waiting until anything goes public to invest. Right. So smart, smart, yeah. smart money is yeah. investing in the private markets. And by yes. the time you get an IPO, that's their exit. You now, exactly. as the retail investor, as the institutional investor, you're coming along and buying when they are getting out. Why are yeah. you buying in yeah. when smart, smart, smart money is selling? 
Exactly. Back to Scott Galloway. He sort of jokes that the IPO market these days, this is the last stop on the pump and dump train. You have all these private investors and they just need to get out of their deal. We had the conversation with Camillo. You're a venture capital firm. You've bought in. You need to get your exit. You need to get that carry for your investors. You need to actually get that cash. You have to exit somehow. That's how they're exiting. But a lot of times they're holding on a lot longer and there's more investors that are potentially coming in. Or even actually, if even if they're not holding on, there are going to be private players you could sell your stake to. There was a notification I saw yesterday that OpenAI, the employees' shares were potentially, were getting monetized in the private markets. At so like everyone's just no valuation. or assigning their position in these investments mm-hmm. to other private investors. So by the time it hits the public market, that means that everybody else who could made mo- yeah. make money has already made their money. As I think, you know, I heard someone say, it's like the juice has already been squeezed out of the lemon. You're buying in and look at Birkenstock. Arguably, it went public at a price over what was fair instead of at a 15% discount. It was priced too high. Now, Instacart, on the other hand, and again, this is on the Demoterin, his view was that he thought the fair price was like 29. There wasn't a lot of upside there just because of the business model. They, they priced it 30. So it was close. It was still high. It wasn't a 15% discount. But also just given the business model, there's just not a lot of upside either. So mm-hmm. there's been and a number of other- how did IPO perform? Oh, not good. It's down to $25. So it, it went public a month ago yesterday mm-hmm. and priced at 30. It actually jumped up to 42 because of mm-hmm. demand. Closed that day at 33. Today it's trading at 2484 mm-hmm. as of right now, Got which it. is what's today, October 19th. So mm-hmm. another busted IPO. And that's sort of been the story of a lot of IPOs. And like, we haven't even gotten to SPACs. Like SPACs are a whole other just shitstorm of- We'll do we'll a have separate to do a episode, episode but... on SPACs. And it's interesting too, just like getting into- Market dynamics. Facts, we by the way, are special purpose acquisition companies. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just yes. in case anyone's yeah, yeah. familiar with and, and we'll put a pin in that. We will we will do uh, this conversation, although it's becoming less and less of a thing. Like it was the whole, it was a rage right. for a while. But, but that's how I, it is with all this mm-hmm. stuff. It's just where we are in the market cycle, right? Yeah. Equities got so overvalued. And with the correction in rates, that's just, I mean, it's unsustainable. We've talked before in the past about the Tina versus Tara market environment, right? The Tina being there is no alternative in an environment where rates were at zero and equities were very high. There was nothing else mm-hmm. to do but either keep buying equities or start to make private investments in the private debt and private equity markets versus now we are in the Tara environment. There are reasonable alternatives where you can buy investment grade <laughs> corporate credit where Again, risk-free rates are in the fives. Add a little bit yeah. of, of credit spread on top of that, and you have things that are yielding exactly. six, six and a half, yeah. seven percent. Right. I mean, essentially risk-free versus right. remember back to our old lesson about capital structure, equities, yeah. where you can literally have it go to zero. I think, I mean, you might have individual retail investors who are like, I really like this name. I was listening to someone talking about like, well, why was GameStop such a thing? And it was a lot of these people who were gamers and they had like an actual connection with having gone into the stores and like GameStop. Uh-huh. They're like, oh, we think this is a great business. I just saw Barnes and Noble is having a resurgence. And it was so funny because I hadn't been into a Barnes and Noble mm-hmm. in 10 years. And I went into one two weeks ago and I was like, this is amazing. I forgot I how great bookstores were. Bookstores. And then I saw that article and I was like, damn it, I should have bought some Barnes <laughs> But but we talked about this a little bit in our Valuation 101 episode that we're talking about the retail investor. We're talking about people who are developing beliefs based on where things are trading now after the fact and saying, okay, is there value here? Is there a story? Is there something I believe in relative to the comps, looking at their projected earnings, all these fun things. And we can make these judgments and stocks can have a great day as a result. 
But yeah. we had been looking at some of the stats about the Magnificent Seven that mm-hmm. have been the primary driver yeah. of the yeah, S&P yeah. 500. And by the way, the Magnificent Seven, if you're not familiar, so that's Google, mm. Tesla, Microsoft, Apple, Meta, NVIDIA, and Amazon. And mm. I think they make up like 30% of the S&P because it's mm. weighted by market cap. So uh-huh. when you hear like the S&P has increased 12.1% this year, that's mostly driven on the backs of those seven. If you take those out, then you're only up like 1.8%. So <laughs> the point of this whole thing is that equities, especially in this high rates environment, it becomes a little bit of a harder sell. And while mm-hmm. the IPO market, I mean, we just saw like two very high name profile companies go public. They're potentially going to be more on the heels. That's part of where we are in the cycle. I mean, this is one of the things that like, if you're in equity well, capital markets, private equity you're going to go talking. Have to exit. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep, they still have to exit. And the IPO market is open. It's part of the cycle, but I would not buy in to Yeah, we've talked before in the past of buying the dip versus catching a falling knife. This all sounds mm-hmm. like catching a falling knife. Yep. Yeah, you did an amazing job with this episode, Kristen. This was so, so, so helpful. And I think for any of our listeners who are considering any number of job opportunities, whether it be the investment banking route with the investment banking division or equity capital markets, which is where Mm -hmm. all of these things are happening within a bank, or the research side, thinking about these companies being the primary coverage for them once coverage starts. Whether you're or you're the about, founder. Like, correct. or you're the Whether founder. You're going to be a founder yeah. of a company and saying, hey, how do I? Everyone always talks about, like, oh my God, I knew this guy in college and he just sold his company for $100 million. This is what mm-hmm. we're talking about. That's that dude that you saw drunk at reunions or whatever. Seriously. This is mm-hmm. what he went through. Or, or woman, or that woman. Or by woman. Well, just see, uh, what's about- her name? The founder of Bumble. She's actually pretty impressive. You know Bumble, right? Yes. yes. Although I have no experience <laughs> on it. <laughs> she took Bumble public and she, I think, is like one of the youngest self-made billionaires or something because good on her, took her helping people find love but yeah so so if you want to be a founder or if you want to go into one of these private market investment areas mm-hmm. whether it be venture capital private equity private credit whatever these are all things that you need to think about because this is going to be part of your day-to-day experience well hopefully you're not doing if you're doing ipos every day <laughs> good on you but uh, but this is what you're going to be thinking about so thank you so much yeah. and if you guys have any questions you know where to find us questions at wall street skinny please leave us a five-star written review on whatever platform you're listening on. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at the Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 